Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show. This is a very fun episode. I had comedian W. Kamau Bell. He is the host of United Shades of America on CNN. He's also got a bunch of podcasts, including Politically Reactive and a wonderfully headlined podcast. Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time, period. Kamau is super smart and very, very funny. We talk about a lot of things that I didn't quite expect that we would get into. Like, what will we think of this period looking back from 2050? How did Eddie Murphy deal with being famous? Why he moved from New York to Berkeley? What are the kinds of opportunities you should not take in life? What he's learned from parenting? It's kind of all over the map. We have a long, I think, pretty good discussion of Trump towards the end, if you're into that kind of thing. Talk a lot about the news's negativity bias and the ways in which we can potentially back off from that. Talked a bit about the ways in which people form political arguments and how it's often rationality protecting feelings as opposed to feelings emerging out of rationality. I've mentioned a book in there, the title of which I forgot when I was talking to him, but it is Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind. Uh, I definitely recommend it if you want to look it up. So it's a fun podcast. As always, please share the podcast with your friends. Listen to my other podcast, The Weeds, if you are interested in policy topics and continue to email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. So without further ado, here is W. Kamau Bell. Hello, how's it going? Good, how are you doing? Uh, I was eating a uh, one of those kind bars that you think are healthy because they say kind on them, but are just chocolate and sugar. But you feel like you're doing something good for your body because they say kind on them. We should do some kind of data project on this inbox. You can track every major health food bar from its first initial healthy incarnation. And then as it becomes more successful, it just gets covered in more and more chocolate. There's, yeah, a, there's yeah. an ineluctable with... transition towards candy bar status in all health food bars. Yeah, it started with those nature, when I was a kid, those Nature Valley granola bars that were just granola bars. And then eventually they're like, well, they're chewy and now they're covered in chocolate. Now they have sprinkles on them. <laughs> it's just like, what, what happened? Well, it, it's a neat trick, right? You build a brand based on health food and then you slowly give away that brand capital to sell candy bars. It's what happened to juices, too. It's, it's, it started out juices and then it morphed into smoothies. And it's like, I think I'm drinking a milkshake for breakfast. But you, you would know this better than I do because you have children. Isn't the... Uh, isn't the conventional wisdom now that juice was never healthy, it was always a scam? 
Well, the, the juice that is like that you go to the store and you buy like apple juice is generally not. It's that was that's always been a scam. That's, that's if you make apple juice at your house, like by squeezing apples, that's okay because you're not adding extra sugar in there. Oh, okay, because because the my um, my my goddaughter, her parents will like jump in front of a train to keep her from getting their juice. We started out that we just we're not that hardcore. Just eventually, <laughs> you don't want to raise the weird kid who doesn't know what juice is. Is how I feel about it. That when they're at lunch one day, they're like, "You want some juice?" They're like, "What is this juice you speak of?" I think that's a that's a road to a kid that is not the kid that I think I want my kid to be. I was not allowed to have sugary cereals, and like with anything, it just made me completely obsessed with sugary cereals. Yeah, I think it's just I don't think <laughs> I, I think it's a gateway to, to uh, like crystal meth is what I'm saying. There we go. <laughs> it's all, it's all a gateway to, to crystal meth, I think, when you when you yeah, think about yeah. it from a wide enough view. So is it hard to be a political comic in a year that is simultaneously sort of funny, but also kind of gruesome and terrifying? Yeah, I think right now this is the hardest time I've ever had. I think... Post 9-11 was hard, too, but this is actually, in some sense, harder because we're not aware that the country's in mourning, but we're actually in a huge state of mourning right now. Oh, that's interesting. There's a lot of pain out there, but we haven't all coalesced around the same pain, so people aren't aware of it. At the same time, my Twitter feed is is all like, look at the crazy, horrible thing that Trump said. The other part of my Twitter feed is also like, look what's going on in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And then the other part of my Twitter feed is, look at all the horrible things that, that athletes of color and women have been called at the Olympics. And it's just like, oh my God, it's, it's all bad right now. It's all bad. What, what do you think is being mourned? Because something that I've become very interested in this election is the way we want to sanitize the things people are upset about into things we are more comfortable with them being upset about. I think there's this sort of ongoing discussion of Trump voters uh, who I think are Trump himself and his voters often are making a pretty clear argument about concerns about immigration, concerns about Muslims in the United States, concerns about the diminution of white privilege. And then there's this desire to transmute it into this sort of formless economic anxiety because skepticism of trade deals is something that is easy for the press to cover in a way that is sympathetic, whereas we shouldn't let in any Muslims. The press does not want to cover that sympathetically. And I think it's become very interesting what kinds of pain we're willing to admit is out there. I mean, I guess I, I, when I hear that, I think the difference between a clear argument and a reasonable argument, I guess, is how I sort of when I hear that, I go, it's clear that they're worried about immigration. But what's the reasonable argument of what they're worried about is how I feel about it, because when you deal with these these big groups of people who have generally been oppressed in our society and you say things like no more of them. There is an emotional argument there and there is an argument that is like, well, what do we what do we do with these people then? And what are you saying about this country? And what does this country mean? And it gets into, you know, it's why I sort of closed my Twitter feed last week. I'm like, I just got to get off of this. This is this is making me sad. Say say more about uh, that. I'm not trying to understand the, the distinction there between a clear and a reasonable argument. For me, I get the sense that if you're a Trump supporter, you're worried about immigration. But then the problem is, is like, I feel like when, when people who present you with evidence that the things you're worried about aren't the things to be worried about, or you're worried about Muslims coming into this country, that that's not actually the place that you should be worried, that that's that Muslims are not coming in here in some sort of mass movement to commit terrorism, that people don't go, oh, 
now that you've presented me with this with this, with this information, I'm going to have to change my argument somewhat. They don't. That's what I'm saying. The clear argument and a reasonable argument. So there's this book I read a while back by a guy named Jonathan Haidt, and I'm, I feel badly because I'm blanking on the name of it. But but if you search H A I D T, you'll find it. And, and he's a political psychologist, basically, and he talks a bit in that book about the ways in which we often have arguments that are based in a, a sense of group identity or a set of moral values, more to the point. But we have to work backwards to there being a real harm. And so there have been these experiments done where you will ask people about situations that violate people's intuitive belief of what is sacred. So you'll say, I, I mean, a, a sort of a, a bit of a facetious example is, should it be illegal to have sex with the carcass of a dead chicken. And people want that to be illegal. Mm-hmm. But they have to figure out some reason, right? It's got to be that it spreads disease or, you know, the, the, something. And there's a lot of stuff like that. <laughs> it's against I think. the health code. Right, it's against the health the code. Incest has a lot of these dimensions, too. I'm, I'm not making an argument for incest. But people want to say, like, it should be illegal because of birth defects. But if you said, well, what if people wanted to practice that promise to take birth control? Nobody wants that to be to be illegal. <laughs> and I think there's a very interesting thing that we do, particularly folks who sort of exist in a more technocratic conversation where everything has to get transposed into a discussion of harms and costs and benefits. And sometimes people just don't like stuff. And I was think that's probably a more powerful motivator for all of us than we want to admit it is. We spend a lot of time, we have this great sort of rational dimension to our brain that we think is the thing creating arguments that lead to our feelings. But I think is very often the thing we have our feelings and the rational side of the brain is coming up with arguments to justify them. I mean, yeah, I think that that's, I mean, the marriage equality, I think, is the most sure. recent example of that. Like, I just don't want, gay people shouldn't get married. Why? I, uh, uh, <laughs> eventually right. those people went, it's fine. You're right. It's fine. I'm just going <laughs> to, I don't, I don't want a gay person to get married in my house. Can I, can I have that? <laughs> you know, like, I think that like, that goes back to like, you know, interracial marriage was that too. Black people, white people should get married. Why? Historically, you can push people enough on those, on those emotional arguments where eventually people just get start, get tired of defending them. And the younger generation goes, I really don't understand why you taught me that mom. It doesn't make any sense. You know, I think religion is the home for that. A lot of people, and I'm not here to be anti-religion either, but the religion is, it's, in this country, it's easy to go because God. And then there's some level of, of political discourse where people will back down and go, oh, they said because God. It's like, it's like base. I said because God. <laughs> you know, like, so, all right, I guess we got to really take this seriously then. When it's like, well, I think God was talking about you and the people who also believe in that God, not everybody. The problem now that I find with this is that because of social media, Arguments that used to not be in front of my face are now getting to me in ways that I'm starting to be like, you're just slowing me down. You're wasting my time. <laughs> like, I, cause now I'm feel like, I sort of feel like I have to engage with this cause I would like you not to think this way. When in reality, it's like, we should just be in our separate corners. Do you think you've ever convinced anyone of anything on social media? I have gotten people to apologize for coming at me in a way that was not productive. Does that mean? <laughs> Boy, we have to find convince someone of something way down. <laughs> yeah, we, well, that's, I think you got to go there because I can't then follow them around and go, well, let's see how it plays out in your life. <laughs> Certainly, though, I feel like those are huge victories when somebody goes, you're right, man. I probably didn't need to start there. It's a good point. And a lot of times people go, you're a good guy. I even like your show. Okay, then what are we, where did this all come from? <laughs> like, so, but the problem is, is that that has taken hours. 
it doesn't take one tweet. It takes hours of back and forth where your kids are like, "Where well, my not your kids, my kids are like, Dad, put your phone down. <laughs> and I'm like, almost. I'm almost at an apology. <laughs> You've seen uh, that old XKCD argument, I'm sorry, cartoon, where it's like the stick figure in front of the computer. And it says, honey, come to bed. And the guy says, no, I can't. And she says, why? And the, the character says, because somebody is wrong on the internet. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And I think, unfortunately, because of the career I have in the world in which I live in, a little bit I'm supposed to do some of this stuff. Like, I can't just pull the cord and get away from it as much as I feel like I can. So I have to sort of be engaged. And it's like, well, what level, how, at what level do I need to be engaged? And when is it like really I'm actively wasting my time? Like today, I went on Twitter and I saw something trending for uh, uh, Black Olives Matter. <laughs> That some Italian restaurant in somewhere, because I decided not to get into it, made T-shirts that says Black Olives Matter. And it's like, oh, my, you're just trolling everybody. You're trolling, <laughs> like, you're, you're trolling the Black Lives Matter people. You're trolling the anti-Black Lives Matter people. And you're selling a lot of T-shirts. And I was like, I didn't need to know this. Like, I didn't need to, like, I didn't need to, I don't need to be, I don't need to be in the middle of this. And yet on some level, you're like... Am I going to have to go have an opinion about this somewhere in the next few days? I think that's such like an interesting question, though. What do we, what does one have to have an opinion about? And, and how do you make those distinctions? So, so my friend Brian Boitler, who's a writer of The New Republic, had a really good piece the other day debunking a theory that liberals created Donald Trump by criticizing Mitt Romney. And on the one hand, it was a very persuasive debunking of this theory. And on the other hand, I had this thought of, did this theory need to be debunked? <laughs> like, what, what, where have we exactly gotten in this election? And, and it's not, I'm not picking up Brian. It's a good piece and he makes some, some broader points that are interesting. But I, I actually think this is one of the tough things about social media about the news right now is knowing what to pay attention to. I mean, in a funny way, Trump is a really good example of this. I remember when I covered Obamacare when that was being constructed. And I would say a good 60% of the pieces that I wrote that many others wrote were about the public option, which was the most live wire fight in the whole bill. And so we spent however many months covering primarily the public option or Obamacare through the lens of this public option fight. And then it happened. Obamacare passed and the public option wasn't in it. So we had taken this whole period of public education and spent all of our energy on something that didn't happen, like as if at the end it'd be like, and that was just a dream, you know, <laughs> like it was a great story. But then I woke up and sometimes I look the, at this. The end of the movie. Uh, what is that? The, the Chris, oh, right, the, Twin Peaks. The Chris, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that there's a dimension of this in this election where you look at the polling and I feel as I'm, I'm the editor of a website that covers this election. You look at the polling and it says pretty clearly at this point that overwhelmingly the likely case is Hillary Clinton is our next president. And yet there is so little coverage of Hillary Clinton compared to the amount of coverage of Donald Trump saying some nonsense every day. And I kind of worry that we're going to get to the end of this and be like, damn, we spent a lot of time covering just total ephemera yeah. at a time when yes. we could have been, you know, Hillary Clinton's transition team came out today. I mean, we have a piece on it, but we don't have as many pieces on it, which is going to be pretty important as we had on Trump's slander of the Khan family. Or just, you know, pieces about what's Trump going to do next? Like pieces about things that haven't even happened yet. Like just pieces <laughs> about like, like he's, he's meeting with, his, with the people and he's meeting with these people and what's happening in that meeting. Yeah, pieces about things where we can't even know what's happening. 
And a little bit it feels like how the NFL season is now year-round. There's no real time off from the NFL. Like, you know, the, there's the preseason, there's the draft, and everybody's always covering it. At some point you're like, we're not even talking about anything. And I feel like right now with the, elect, with the, with the election, I'm like, if we know, let's just have the election tomorrow and get it done so we can get to the part where we're criticizing Hillary Clinton's presidency. Like, can we get, if we know that that's the case— can we just get to the part where, like, you're already doing a bad job? So, so indulge me in this. Like, let's step back yet more than that. When in 2050, kids are reading the history of the 2010s, when, when that is a, a chapter in a textbook, what do you think they will read about? It depends on where that stuff ends up. <laughs> I guess it feels like, are we a police state then? Are we? <laughs> like, I guess is it, it's like that sci-fi movie. Which, which way did the butterfly blow the winds of change? Right. The thing that's frustrating for me about Trump is that no matter what happens, he gets a chapter in American history. Even if he loses in a landslide, he gets a chapter in American history because of what almost happened. You know, and I think hopefully they will be talking about like, that was nearly the fall of the American empire. But then at the last minute, we pulled it out. You know, that's the thing. Right now, it's like this. We're like, which way are we going to go? And I, and I look at two discussions happening. There's the election. Because whether Trump loses or not, we've still he's still inflamed a whole segment of the American populace that will still be here. They don't all leave. So then it's about, well, what happens when, when President Hillary Clinton is in office? And that those people are still upset and sad. But then there's also... The issue that I'm following close to closely as closely as I can is policing in America. Which way does that go? And I'm not sitting here right now feeling necessarily hopeful about it because I feel like there's still something that has to happen to push the American populace into like, oh, yeah, we need to make some big sweeping changes. And we're not there yet. So I look at that, you know, that 2050 and they're reading the history books and it's like. I think they they look at something that is a mess. Like I think they go like, "Wow, that's how democracy was working back then. That's what they called democracy. That's what they called policing in this country." But then the question is like, which way does it go after that? That's the hard part of being a comedian right now. We're supposed to have the punchlines to this, and right now I'm sitting here without the punchlines. <laughs> I think about this a lot, and I, I think everything you said there makes sense. And I, I still wonder if we are totally missing the plot. I mean, in the background right now, we have invented this technology, CRISPR, and CRISPR is gene editing. We can we are literally on the cusp of being able to go in and edit, as I understand. And my understanding of this, I really want to be clear, is sketchy, but it is. <laughs> yeah, clear. I, I listen to I listen to that radio lab, too. I'm right, right. here with you. We are pretty close to being able to go in and do selective editing of a human being's genome. And is anything happening right now? in the world as important in the long sweep of human history as the opportunity to take control of our own evolution. Maybe 50 years is almost the wrong time frame because I feel like if you go back 100 or 200 years and you just read anything about these periods, you just hear nothing about marginal tax rates. You know what I mean? There's just very, <laughs> very, very little. I'm not saying these things are unimportant, but there's very little about a lot of the the policy topics of the day. Whereas I had a guy on, on the show uh, maybe two months ago named Patrick Brown. And his company, Impossible Foods, they're one of these big venture-backed companies with you know Bill Gates and Google Money, and they are making a plant-based burger that bleeds. And I've had it. It, it tastes like a burger. And in 2050, when we are all eating lab-grown and plant-based meat, is the whole story of this era going to be these monsters who were torturing cows to have shitty Taco Bell? <laughs> 
tacos. <laughs> and and how if so, like if you believe like how do you cover that? Like how do you think about what the plot is of the time you're living in? I mean, I do feel like technology right now is, I, you know, I feel like social media is part of this, too. I, I often look around and go, I feel like we're the cavemen who just discovered fire and are just <laughs> burning ourselves eat with it while we eat raw fetid meat and getting sick. Like, man, this fire is amazing. Man, this meat is killing me. <laughs> we haven't figured out, like, put the fire to the meat. So I do feel like right now that, like, I think about my kids, they're going to grow up and be like, what were you doing? Like, what was that? Like, Twitter will either be gone or will evolve to, like, that's what you're using it for? So any <laughs> random person could just uh, yell obscenities at you and you would respond to them? <laughs> and I was next to you? Like, yeah, that's kind of what we were doing. And so and you weren't paying like attention was, to me? <laughs> yeah, you, you were, were paying doing attention this to me? Instead, look how much you tweeted. <laughs> In fact, you handed me the iPad. <laughs> you, said, you said, watch some more Doc McStuffins. Yeah, I do feel like right now, I think about that all the time, that I think we, we've gotten this all wrong. And we're going to look up and be like, if, the, if I have hope, that's I have hope that the next generation is going to be like, yeah, you really missed the ball and all this technology stuff that that we were just sort of like burning ourselves with it. And the next generation is going to go, no, this is actually how this all works and how it actually helps us get to a better place as opposed to just sort of stalling us out. It's a very weird and, feeling that I have a lot lately in this era of at least in some dimensions of the economy, pretty rapid technological change, where sometimes I feel that we are living in a super modern place and the salient instinct is things were so different 30 years ago. And sometimes I feel like we live in a pre-modern place and you just realize 50 years from now, this will be totally archaic. Like I had a, a sensitive molar uh, for the last couple of months and I just realized that dentists have no fucking idea what they're doing. They're just like, well, we'll do a root. We'll just rip the root out of your tooth. I'm like, okay, that sounds fine. And so I go in and they rip the root out of my tooth and it doesn't work. And then I go back and like, well, we found a small hole. We'll fill that. I said, fine. I, I guess that makes sense. Went back. That didn't work. Then they just took out all four of my wisdom teeth, which also appears to have not fixed the problem. And they're just ripping things out of my mouth because they yes. actually don't know how to fix teeth with any particular degree of accuracy. And the there's just a lot of that when you step back. I mean, we have no idea how to treat back pain, for instance. And we live in this age of what often feels like technological splendor. And sometimes you get a little glimpse of how, assuming we don't blow ourselves up or, you know, unleash the zombie plague or whatever it might be, how barbaric a lot of what we're doing today will look in 2200. I do feel like that's where we're at. I feel like we're at like that, whatever that point was, like right before the car was invented when they were like, horses, <laughs> carriages, why would anybody? And I feel like we're having a lot of those horses, carriage conversations. We're having a lot, like right before flight was invented, they're like, a man will never fly. It'll be maybe 200 years from now. Oh, next week they did it? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I feel like that's where we're at with a lot of discussions. And it's very clear to me as a person, uh, I have two kids and my oldest daughter is five. My youngest daughter is almost two. And in the time that we had those two kids, things changed about how you were supposed to treat babies. In a three-year period? Yeah. Assuming yes. I did that very simple math right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And now here's the thing. Maybe it's the doctors we went to, but conventional wisdom seems to have shifted. Like when 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 uh, my oldest daughter, Sammy, was born, they were like, at six months, you introduce food. Start with like, like a soft food, like bananas, avocados. Don't give honey for a year. Don't give nuts. And there's sort of a very sort of a rigorous schedule of how you feed a kid. When Juno showed up, they're like six months. 
you know, nothing that chokes her. (laughs) (laughs) It was just like, wait, what? What are you talking about? And and you still, honey is a still thing where they say wait, but like nuts were like, well, it's probably better to give them nuts earlier than later because they might develop an allergy. If you don't give them too too late, they'll have an allergy. And that's where we think a lot of peanut allergies are coming from because parents wait too long to give their kids. And it was like, that was three years ago. And the thing is about with kids too, the wisdom with kids now is like you don't want a kid to sleep on their stomach. But when we were a kid, they were like, yeah, lay them down on their stomach. That's the best way for them to sleep. Like, and they were talking about within a period less than like 20, 30 years ago. And so for me, I'm like, and that's around like the most basic thing we've been doing forever is raising a child. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> and science is still like, ah, we're still not sure about how all this works. And you get to try we're that sleeping sure. experiment every night, right? It's not even one of the hard ones to run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's actually, it's, yeah. But, but I think also it's, it's hard to get a control group of sure, like, we're yes. just going to like, <laughs> but, but I thought it was funny. Like, wait, you just, three years ago, you told me that I'm supposed to feed. Now it's different. Yeah, it's just different now. So what okay, have you science, learned from, thanks. from parenting? What are your three lessons that, that, that uh, are how you are different now than you were six years ago? Um, parenting is not for everybody and there's no shame in not being a parent. I'm not one of those people who tells all my single childless friends, you really have to, to complete your life. You have to show up and get a bit. I'm not one of those people. Who, I think who that's, isn't I think it that's, for specifically? And, and you can name names. Who's it for specifically? <laughs> like, 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 like friends of mine or famous people. Uh, <laughs> I have friends like, uh, well, you know, it's funny. I, I can name my friends, Mike and Kate, who are don't have kids and they just talk about going home and watching Netflix and I'm like do that thing <laughs> like, like don't feel like a less productive member of society because you have free time and get lots of sleep and I think that when people have kids they tend to like make people who are sort of enjoying their lives feel like try to want to make you feel guilty about that and I really feel like no you know what Kate and Mike are the best aunt and uncle ever because they're always <laughs> free to come over and help I really have embraced the idea that like Stop romanticizing the idea of raising kids. Either you do it or you don't, but there's nothing magical in it about doing it. There's nothing noble about doing it. If you do a good job, maybe there's some nobility in that, but there's nothing inherently noble about having a kid. The other thing I would say is that I like, like, and I've, this has been controversial with my parents' friends, I like being a dad. I don't necessarily like being a parent. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Uh, being a dad is like, I've made a new person. And I'm their dad. And let's go to the park and let's go get let's go to the go get pizza. Let's go get ice cream. Let's watch some TV. I'm going to show you this thing that I know that that I always that I never showed anybody before. <laughs> you know, like this sort of like the skill that I have. Look, I can make I got your nose. That's all being a dad. That's fun. Being a parent is brutal. <laughs> like it is like it is like there's a lot of like just hard work that you're not going to be thanked for unless your kid till the wedding toast, hopefully, you know? <laughs> and so there's just, it's not a, it's, it's, it's joyless work <laughs> like that, that, that your kid doesn't necessarily appreciate. And your kid shouldn't really appreciate because your kid's a kid. Your kid shouldn't be like, dad, I thank you for getting up at three o'clock in the morning with me last night. Cause I had a bad dream. Like that's unreasonable, but it doesn't mean that you don't feel like, could somebody tell me thank you? And I think that's where a lot of the tension comes with married couples is that you're like both looking at each other like, could you say thank you? Why should I say thank you? you know, so, I love being a dad. Being a parent is not my favorite thing. Oh, yeah. Being a parent is things like your kid says, can I watch more TV? And you're like, no. And they say, why? And you're like, I have no idea. <laughs> it's just what you're supposed to say because you've already watched enough TV. You know, like, like I, don't, I don't really know why that's an important thing. And then the third thing is I really wasn't aware that you could sort of make a new friend. 
like my oldest daughter's five and we're friends. Like we're legitimately like, and I think maybe that's about parenting style. I don't think every parent does that. Me and my mom were best friends growing up. I was in the, the you know, I just, it was just me and her for most of the time. And so I just thought that we got lucky, but I think somehow I got, my mom passed that down. So like, I feel like me and my daughter, my oldest daughter, especially because she's five, my youngest daughter still, we're still getting to know each other. But we're legitimately friends, which is actually cool to think I made a new friend. And now I hear that around high, high school that changes. But right now it's cool. Has having kids changed your politics at all? It's funny. I think sometimes people think having kids makes you more conservative. For me, it makes me more like I think it pushed me further to the left. Like I think it really like I think it made me more like more aware of like the need for inclusion and in progressive politics and for like we need to and we need to make sure we have a society that that is there for everybody, you know, that has has equity in it. And I think that also because I have two daughters, I'm very aware of the difference between how society treats little girls and how society treats little boys and how society gives like when little boys are like wrestling on the floor biting each other they're sort of ah oh, you know how little boys are and when little girls do it there's a, like stop doing that and so you can see from the very beginning how society encourages men to take up more space from the earliest age and sort of tells women to like sort of be smaller versions of themselves so for me that's something I've noticed and I've talked about in my act a bunch and we'll probably continue to talk about it and for me with my daughters I'm like yeah wrestle kick throw punch <laughs> you know like like my daughter's at, there's a rule in my house that you can't punch anybody but dad because i'm like you you need to know how to throw a punch and one day you're gonna go i think i need to punch this person even though i know this was with my dad and you probably should <laughs> so like <laughs> I, I think it's important to let my daughters not be uh gendered in that way so that's the one thing that's changed but yeah it hasn't made me more conservative did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. What kinds of discipline do you need to be a good sort of sociopolitical comic? In a given day, what do you have to force yourself to do that you don't really want to? Everybody's different. I think for me, I have to read deeper into articles that I probably was only going to read the first couple of paragraphs of sometimes. 
There's a lot of like Googling things like, wait, wait, like the TPP. Like, wait, what is that exactly? Like, I can't just sort of have a tertiary knowledge of the things Vox that I would sort of let. <laughs> that's, believe me, Vox has actually been there for me. Don't, don't think to hear it has it. it. Glad to hear it. Vox is a very, yeah, that's not, I was not unaware. Like, so just that level of like knowing that like, and sometimes somebody will come to you, why don't you talk more about this? And you go, all right, I'll go home and look that up and see if that's something I'm supposed to talk about. So, yes, I think having a wider knowledge base than I would probably have normally, like I would, you know, like I might have a little bit about it, but I really need to dig into it. And then also being comfortable revealing when I don't know what I'm talking about so that if somebody challenged me on something and I realized, no, this person's right, you have to sort of, it's not fun to go, you're right, I was I was wrong. Me and Hari Kondabolu have a new podcast, Politically Reactive. We've done six episodes and we've already had two where we had to go, whoops, because <laughs> our audience is a much more active audience than I think some podcast audience are because we're talking about things people care about a lot. This is something I've really, and I've talked about this a bit on the show before, but I have felt in a funny way that it is easier to be wrong on a podcast. It, a, a podcast reminds people that you're just some person talking, and in these cases, talking extemporaneously, as much as people might be shocked we actually have not scripted this conversation or it would be better. And <laughs> there is a, a real freedom in that that I think makes the format a little bit exciting and fun, uh, at least for now until it maybe professionalizes a bit more. But I'm on the weeds and, and, and here, too. I've definitely gotten things wrong. But I find that people aren't as pissed off about it. Well, yeah, I think there's a sense that people in podcasts can hear you sort of hear us reaching for words and hear us and hear us say something. And then there, you have the option to go back and go, oops, in a way that you really can't do with Twitter. Like, you, you can say oops, but people still looking at people are some people are still discovering that tweet for the first time. And so I really feel like with podcasts, there's a sense that they you get to embrace more of you, your humanity so that you're allowed to actually say something that, you know, like, I don't think this is right, but this is how I feel. And you can own it in a way that you can't own it in social media without having to then immediately defend it or apologize for it. When did you know that you wanted to, to go into comedy? What is the backstory there? That was the first thing I saw that I was like, I want to do that. I mean, at the time, I think I would have said actor, but like I was early days of SNL. Like I was just like my mom said when I was a kid that she could get me to do anything if she if, if she let me stay up to watch SNL. Like I was just like what era was, was like, I'm 43. So I, I feel like I remember the first couple years of SNL, but that's impossible. But certainly like I remember Eddie Murphy showing up on Saturday Night Live and being like, Oh, because he looked like he was the same age as me. <laughs> like, you know, he, was like, <laughs> he was 19 years old, but I was like that, you know. And he also felt like an authentic person. He didn't feel like somebody, you know. I remember the Garrett Morris era of SNL, and I think Garrett Morris, Garrett Morris is hilarious, but he, but he didn't feel like me. Whereas Eddie Murphy felt like this is a kind of a guy you know. And you also got to see him go from zero to 100. Like there was a sense of like, who's that guy in the back? That black guy, what's he doing? Oh, they let him come forward. Oh, he's got a couple sketches. Oh my God, he's the biggest comedian in the country. Oh my God, he's hosting the show while he's on it. Like it was like <laughs> watching an athlete come into prominence. And so, and I remember watching stand-up on TV. I was sort of, you know, a kid during the era when stand-up comedy started to boom. And so I remember seeing like Jerry Seinfeld on The Tonight Show and just sort of being like, I'm, Jerry Seinfeld to me was like a guy, I remember him before he was famous. Like I was like, I remember like, <laughs> I, I like that guy. He's my favorite comedian. Oh, good for him. He got, a, he got a TV show. Oh my God, he's the biggest comic in America. You know, so there was a sense of like, that was my, you know, I wasn't really into sports. That was my thing. I was a comedy nerd before it was a thing and, but didn't know how to get into it. But then I sort of, I lived in Chicago for a while, ended up dropping out of college. My mom signed me for classes at Second City. 
I did the whole program there. I'm always clear to say I, I paid to be at Second Cities. I never got paid to be at Second City. And then a, my best friend told me about an open mic at a coffee shop. And so I went there and we I signed up and did five minutes playing to the back of people's heads as they played chess. And, uh, <laughs> and you're like, this and, is awesome. This is all. Yeah, no, this is great because there's six other comedians in the room who are waiting to go on stage and also play and play to people playing chess. Yeah, there was when I started, it was the air of the comedy boom had ended. And so there was really no. There was no love. Comedy clubs were closing, so you really had to love it. <laughs> like there, you had to because there was no money was not quick to come and acclaim was not quick to come. When was the moment when you said to yourself, "Yeah, this could actually be a career. I'm not going to have to go <sighs> and do something, you know, more traditionally secure." You know, I I had a really I was bad for a long time, and not to take too much credit for being good now, but I'm better than I was. But I was really like. You know, I would compare myself to some sort of minor league baseball player who's like waiting for a shot at the show. And it's like, but all the rookies are younger. You know, you're, you're the <laughs> oldest guy on the minor league team now. So there was a lot of fits and starts. There's a lot of like times where I would think about quitting. There's times where I like I'd do that thing where I'd call like the culinary academy and go like, how do you how do you get an application here? How do I, you know, like there would be things I would try to look for outs and one time I even sort of manage the comedy club thing. And maybe I'll just be a manager of a comedy club so I can be around it. But it just sort of never went away. <sighs> I don't know. I remember the first time I was 10 years in, which is a pretty long time in, before I ever featured at a comedy club, which is when you do the 30-minute spot after the opener, but before the headliner everybody came to see. And I remember the first week I featured, I felt like, okay, nobody can say I'm not a comedian now. You know, the openers sometimes are hobbyists, but the feature is a real comedian. So it's not that I thought it could be a career still, but I thought... I've actually done something that it's hard to do and that nobody can say I didn't do. And so I had all those things like that where I kept being like, okay, I've done this. But it wasn't until I wrote my solo show and sort of turned away from the club's aspect of stand-up comedy that I thought, like, I just want to do something I want to do, and I will work hard to make it a career because I want to do it badly enough. But there was not a point at which I felt like, ah, I have arrived. That there's not That never showed up. I always felt like I was – that if I stopped sort of running fast, it could go away. I always wonder if that that feeling is true for everything. I mean, I feel like that in journalism. <laughs> that yeah, it's sort mean, of I, as good I, as I, this week's you know pieces and traffic numbers. I guess that's true, but I think that if you're, I think there's just certain parts of of industries that are more reliable that you can that you know like there's more people are paying attention to that. There's not a lot of people who are like who even identify as political comedians, you know, like there's right. not, so, I mean, that's not, it's not like there's a bunch of us where it's like, well, we always need to have those. Whereas like, if you're a comedian who's just like, I just talk about stuff, there's a lot of room there. You know, there's a lot of places that the industry can put you. There's a lot of like, you know, do you want a sitcom? Do you want to, do you want to be in movies? Do you want to be in the Transformers? Like there's, I've, I sort of look at contemporaries of mine who can sort of go anywhere. And I just feel like it creates more options for you than with me. It's a pretty narrow field. So it's like, if I stop running, I feel like the phone calls stop coming in. <laughs> like it just it, immediately it ends. Now maybe I've also I'm also convinced myself of that, but it's I just feel like I look at friends of mine who are like more utility players who are great, but can do can be in more places. Over time, did you get to meet some of those folks who were heroes on SNL or heroes in, in early comedy? You know, it's funny. I I have not met Eddie Murphy because my circle is not that, but I have worked with Chris Rock on my old show. Totally biased, so I felt like I got a lot of Eddie Murphy stories. Like I was very happy. <laughs> well, what's your What's your best Eddie Murphy story you can share? Uh, yeah, that's that's a, the key part. Uh, I don't think I heard of that. I couldn't share. But my favorite one is about how f- it was a story Chris told about how famous Eddie Murphy was. That people like he was like people don't realize 
people think people are famous now, how famous Eddie Murphy was and he got famous. And he talked about how Eddie Murphy just, because he got famous so young that he just sort of lived a life that royalty lived. And it was this story, and the way Chris told it was hilarious, that like, he said whenever Eddie Murphy would, like say it was snowing outside, so Eddie Murphy would come into a room and he would be like, you know, winter coat, scarf, hat, gloves. He would just walk into a room and he would take them off and just drop them behind him. <laughs> and there was somebody there whose job it was to make sure it didn't hit the floor. And he said Eddie would never look behind to see whether or not somebody caught them because that was your job. <laughs> and it just sounds like King of, like Queen of England stuff. It doesn't sound like something that a regular person should, would have access to. And I just remember, just like, I'm never going to get that famous. I'm never going to be that rich. Like, I'm just like, I don't know that I'm going for that, but I'm just aware that, like, my career arc is never going to take me there. No matter what happens to me with my show at CNN or with my career, if I drop my gloves behind me, they're hitting the ground. (laughs) (laughs) And my kids are going to be like, Dad, I pick up your gloves. It's so funny because even hearing that story, I cringe a little bit, not in a... Not for maybe the obvious reasons, but but just that sounds like such a weird life. So uh, a couple of years ago, I was, I was doing a lot more cable news than I am now. And it became, it became in D.C. people watch cable news. And so I could be recognized places more uh, more often. And I found it to be the most uncomfortable, strange thing and really fascinatingly psychologically toxic. I I can't remember Mm -hmm. too many other things in my life that I simultaneously hated the actual experience of and craved the general fact of. Everything about being recognized on the street was an unpleasant, socially anxiety-producing experience for me. And yet, if it didn't happen for a week or two. I was like, what's, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, wait a minute. I gotta get gotta get my Q rating back up. Again. It's real. It's real weird and and bad. I think. <laughs> yeah, when I when I tell that Eddie Murphy story, the things I'm aware of is like that's super famous, and also like, but if you've earned that and you've and you are comfortable with that, and you're paying that person behind you a living wage, then go live that life. Oh, sure, you know? yeah. Like, but uh, and I'm sure he was. But and I but I certainly am in this point right now because of the CNN show. Like I had some, a little bit of fame, whatever that thing is when I had the totally buy show on FX and FXX, but CNN is everywhere. Like it's in every airport or not every, there's some in the South that don't do it, but, uh, yeah, there's an airport it's, that CNN has not yet reached. Exactly. <laughs> and I wrote it down and sent it to them. So they're working on it. You know, the funny thing is, is that someone, so sometimes there's a sense of like, especially in airports where a little bit like more than one person at a time. And you're sort of standing there like, I have to get to a flight. But also very aware that I remember very viscerally because it was like, you know, when my daughter was born, my oldest daughter, who's five, this life was not the life I was leading. So I remember very what it was like when nobody cared. And so I had this I walked this line of like being very appreciative of the fact that people care, knowing that nobody cared and knowing that people care means that you're likely to stick around a little bit longer. Like, you know, that <laughs> people have an investment in you. And, you know, I think it's in the society we live. Yes, I'll take a picture. Yes, I'll do this. But at the same time, knowing this, that if I start to believe that it means something, then I'm doomed. Then I am the guy with a, with just a cable news TV show walking in, dropping my coat behind me, and people going, why is he dropping his coat? <laughs> like, just like that, that you start to th- – I can't get caught up in thinking I am Eddie Murphy. Like, I'm not Eddie Murphy. I, so I think that's the thing that I – 
and then the disconnect between that and how when you go home that nobody cares. <laughs> like, no, like, yeah. <laughs> I, and I think that's the thing I deal with is the is that disconnect where I have to sort of like power down after a day of being like if people telling me things are good. I'm really fascinated by the soft skills it takes to sustain some of these jobs. Uh, a number of years ago, I think it was uh, an economics writer named Justin Fox wrote about this, but I, I could have it wrong. And he was talking about how it is actually a very important skill for a multinational CEO to be able to sleep on airplanes. And when he said it, it made total sense to me that if you're going to be flying across your supply chain constantly, you actually need to be able to rest on airplanes and get off and not feel like death and do your job. But I would have never thought about it, right? I would have never said one thing that separates the folks who end up at the top of that kind of food chain from the others is literally the capacity to pass out and rest and absorb that kind of physical stress from international travel. And and similarly, it feels to me just watching from, from afar that there are people for whom reasons completely separate from why they got famous are good at and capable of remaining famous. They have a discipline about what they do and don't say on Twitter. They're nice when people come up and ask for a picture. It just doesn't exhaust them too much to be social in that way. They're good at regulating who is around them, things like that. And they have sort of nothing to do with whether you're a good actor or whether your cable news show is excellent. But I think they're often pretty determinative and they're the kind of thing that we don't know how to clearly think about or prepare people for or even judge societally if this is the thing that we want to be selecting for. It just it's happening somewhat slowly in the background. And when it succeeds and fails, we attribute it to something else. Like maybe Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy was an amazing, amazing, amazing comic. But it's possible that one reason he could get so famous was he was good at being famous in a way that other comics who were also very funny were bad at being famous. Well, yeah, I've, I've seen that throughout my career. Every comedy scene has a few playground legends, like the guy who were like, that guy was funnier than everybody, but didn't return a phone call or wouldn't right. get on a plane to go to L.A. or wouldn't, you know, like, a, you know, or would kill every night except the night when everybody showed up from Hollywood to take the next person, you know. Most times that boils down to is not good at the part that's not being on stage, you know. it just And so I've seen that. More times I can count and have and have a good friend who's that way who, you know, Chris Rock would be like, that guy was funnier than all of us. And my friend knows that Chris thinks he was funnier than him. My friend's Dwayne Kennedy. He actually worked on Totally Bias. But Dwayne just doesn't have the, his, you know, he just doesn't have that. I call it that. I always refer to it as the thousand yard stare. The sort of the, uh, you know, the entertainment industry version of by any means necessary. And I've seen it in people where I go, that person's got the thousand yard stare where they're not going to be denied. If they get a chance, they're not going to be denied. Uh, like, I don't have it. And I, and I have friends who don't have it where it's like, I'm going to say, no, nah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> like, I don't wanna, like, I'm going to turn down an opportunity that sounds like I should take. Now, I'm not full on like my friend Dwayne. And I can say that because he knows I've said that to him. But I do know that there's a difference between people who are like, no, it's it's almost to me sometimes like people who are like, no, this is where I'm supposed to be. Uh-huh. They're not surprised when they when they get success. They're like, finally, the world has acknowledged. And it, and it sounds sick, but I think it's necessary if you're going to be in show business. You sort of need to have a little bit of like, if you think you don't deserve any of it, that's how you end up running away from it. And it just so happens that most of my 
the people I admire are the ones who are like do it for a little while and then go, that's enough. <laughs> like, like, you know, like, like sort of like cash in their chips and go, I'm good, you know. And so, and I'm aware of that about myself, which is why I live in Berkeley. Like, I can't do what I want to do and be around it all the time in New York or LA. I have to be someplace where I can sort of be away from it or else it's going to drive me crazy. That's such an interesting point. And, and I like that you said you admire it. I, I was thinking about that while you were speaking that. I think 10 years ago, I really admired the thousand yard stare. I admired it in others to some degree. I think it's actually a quality that I have a little bit. I've been very, very hungry in my own career. And more recently, I've really come to admire people who know when to say when, know when something isn't for them, know when something is enough, know when an opportunity is maybe not an opportunity, but a distraction or know when the next level is going to make them less happy and maybe in some ways less creative or less productive or or less moral in the nature of their work than the one they're on. I actually think that's a really difficult skill to cultivate. I'd be very curious to hear about how you thought about that move from, I think it was New York, if I'm not wrong, to Berkeley in terms of that. Like, what was it that you didn't want to be around? It's funny. Like, I, I feel like I've seen a lot of that up close because I, I got to work with Chris Rock through my show Totally Bias, and he's got the Thousand Yard Stare. And I got to open for Dave Chappelle a bunch in the Bay Area, specifically after he got back from South Africa. So I got to see a guy actually talking about his sort of struggles in the business. So I feel like I've, se- I've I feel like I've seen it <laughs> like from up close to go, yeah, I understand one of these people better than the other. Uh, <laughs> but I moved from Chicago to the to the Bay Area in 97 and cuz the Chicago comedy scene wasn't really doing enough for me or I wasn't doing enough for it and at that point stand up wasn't really big, it's big there now. And so I, San Francisco is one of the legendary scenes where you hear people can grow. So I moved to the Bay Area and spent a lot of time out here. And the Bay Area is where I found my voice and found my politics and and found a community of people who I felt like understood me, but also would call me on my shit. So I felt like it was like, this is good. And then we moved to New York for Totally Biased for the for the show. And we were there and they there for couple years, but the show lasted just over a year and then got canceled, <laughs> which sounds familiar to me if anybody's paying attention to the news right now, the nightly show. And uh, and so I was just like, and so when we finished, there was a little bit of like, well, we moved all this way. You know, we've sort of started to make friends here. We need to move out of this expensive apartment because that was for a guy who had a TV show. <laughs> and then my wife got pregnant. And it was like we started going to OBGYNs and it was just very clear to us that like the birthing experience we'd had in the Bay Area with our first daughter was not going to be replicated in New York and which was important to us. And then it was like, well, do we go back to the Bay Area and have the baby there and come out here? And then suddenly something clicked like, wait a minute, we can go back to the Bay Area. <laughs> like, it was just like we, we don't have to stay here if we don't want to. And I did like New York, but it was just the pace of life in New York is hectic. I'm not breaking any news there. It's, yeah, it's but I hear you can order an ottoman at three in the morning because for some reason <laughs> you might want to do that. Do. It's so weird what people like brag about in New York. It's just the most bizarre thing to me. It's like, oh, the, know, the they get downstairs, miss- we'll give you a drill like on a holiday yeah. at two. It's like, good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, the, the only thing I miss about New York is Dwayne Reed across the street. That's the only thing I miss. Like, like that, <laughs> a 24 hour pharmacy across the street from my apartment. That's the only part about New York when I'm like, man, I wish we had a 24 hour pharmacy across the street, which is more of a parent concern. But yeah, like the rest of it is like, it's hard to raise young kids there. And also for me, I know creatively, I need to be in a space where I feel like I, I just feel creative and I feel like I have access to things and I feel like I can make moves quickly and I feel like I can breathe. And it was just like all that stuff to me said, Bay Area, Bay Area, Bay Area. 
And my wife's family's out here. And when you're raising a kid, it's an all hands on deck situation. So it's like we need to be closer. I would like my daughters to grow up knowing who their cousins are in a very real way, not just like, well, we see them once or twice a year. It became a family decision that I knew was healthier for me mentally and emotionally. Like I just knew that like I will be a healthier person if I live in the Bay Area. And do you think that that is a choice that comes at the cost of a certain level of output or a certain set of opportunities you would have gotten that you would have gotten there but won't get in in the Bay Area? Or do you think this is a kind of thing that pulling back, you're able to focus on your act more, that you're able to to be choosier? I mean, how, how do you think about what the cost or benefit was to the literal work? Coming back was definitely a bet on me. Like, do I think I can figure this out? without the support of the industry that is here in New York, you know, sort of, I mean, I have agent and manager and all kind of stuff, but I mean, without the sort of the, the tremendous oxygen flow of, of industry that is in New York City versus the very sort of light oxygen flow of the industry that's in, in Berkeley. <laughs> I am the entertainment industry here. I don't literally mean that people in the Bay Area who are hearing this right now. Uh, but, <laughs> so everybody <laughs> can email at... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I just feel like I, you know, so I know that coming back, it was like, it was going to turn the volume down on stuff. So I was like, well, that means I have to then turn the volume up on things, which is, and at the time I had the pilot for the CNN show, and I was like, well, I can live anywhere and do that show, but I really better put everything into this pilot to try to make sure it goes. So I sort of bet on the pilot, and, you know, that's why I have three podcasts, because I, you know, I was like, there's, I need to sort of make my own gravy, as the old dog food commercial says. And so... I was aware that like if I do that, then it's then it's more on me than it might be in in New York. And I'm also turning down the opportunity to do things like I regularly get emails from people like, are you in town right now? Could you come do this thing? And they're not all big money making opportunities, but they're things that it's good to go do things and be around people and hang out with people and meet people. Like, for example, uh, I'm friends with Phoebe Robinson and Jessica Williams, who have the Two Dope Queens podcast and and Phoebe emailed me it was like I was in New York for a couple of days she's like are you going to be in town on Thursday we're doing a show and it'd be great to have you on I was like no I'm leaving and then 2 days later that's the show that John Stewart came out at and I was like son of a <laughs> <laughs> And here's the thing. I've only met John once. I have a friend who who's met him a couple times, and so John has mentioned me. And I'm like, I've never had that conversation with John Stewart that my friend has had about me with John Stewart. And so there's a sense of that. I sort of having to be okay with those type of opportunities being missed. And sometimes it does make it. I do go. If I was there, I could. And there are times where I go. You know what? I'm going to get on a plane and fly across country to do this thing in New York that doesn't really make sense, but I feel like I want to be a part of it. Yeah. So I'm aware it's like I'm going to be on planes more. I'm going to feel regret about missing things, but that just means I have to focus that re- that energy of regret and into things I'm doing here. There's opportunities lost because also just things happening where like, you know, there's just not a lot of like, hey, just go around the corner and do that thing right quick. Oh, that ended up being the thing that turned into something else. There's just not a lot of that. Something that I have been working on myself over the past, I don't know, six months is I have finally admitted <laughs> that I am, the way I'm going to run my organization is not going to be particularly social. When I started doing Vox, all of a sudden I was invited to a lot more conferences and invited to do a lot more speaking and going places and and all of that. And I did it and got really, really, really run down and pretty unhappy. And it took me a while to look around and say, that is a competency other people have to go to these conferences, to have tons of these meetings, to, to look for these partnerships, to look for these opportunities. And it is actually the thing I am bad at. And I'm going to have to let that class of opportunity either go or be managed by someone else or whatever. And I've been, frankly, a lot happier since then. But I I wonder if that's 
part of it, right? If part of it is saying, okay, I'm really good at doing this kind of thing and it aligns with the lifestyle I want and I have to let this other kind of thing go a bit more because as much as there is very real opportunity there, ultimately it's a little bit penny wise and pound foolish to be trying to find everyone if it leads to you, you know, burning out in five years. Yeah, I think that's the thing I'm very aware of is that uh, that th- that there's a way that this gets done where, you know, where if, I, if I'm always chasing the opportunity or always or always feel like I have to chase the dollar, which when you have kids, you do have to chase the dollar. <laughs> so that's part of being. But there's no nobility in that. As I said earlier, you do have to sort of make sure the lights stay on, so, but I have to balance that with my mental health that, yeah, there's just things that you have to say no to. And I'm still learning that because because I'm in the position where I have to where I'm creating a lot of my own opportunities and sort of and sort of building my own projects up. Like right now, I've like I've got these three separate podcasts I'm working on, and there's also sort of this energy around the CNN thing about se- about the season two of the show and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, my agent's like, you should go out on tour and do some stand up because you know the CNN show went well, and we want to see, you know, want to get out there and see the people. And I'm in this position of like. I don't actually have an act right now. Like, I don't have, like, I don't have, <laughs> There's one like, problem. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, okay, book the dates now. And I was trying to book some shows to get my act together. And I realized that the act of doing those shows was actually exhausting me. And I was like, well, this isn't helping. Like, I'm not building anything. I'm just making my current life harder. And so I am at this point now of like, is looking at like, how do I call some of this back? Because say I, I do all these things and I hit some big showbiz well of money and, you know, I get to, and something happens that is like life, some life changing amount of money. But, uh, you know, I have a heart attack in five years. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I just feel like I, I would rather have a smaller house and less heart attacks. Is what sure. I'm so that's the, that's the thing I'm sort of, you know, struggling with every day is like, what's the right mix of things and how do I best put them on the plate and how do I, and because I'm here by myself, as far as like, I don't have a manager who lives in Berkeley or whatever, I'd be the one that knows when to say no. Speaking as a man with two podcasts, having three sounds really exhausting. <laughs> uh, luckily, one is only once a month, so it's, oh, it's still exhausting, go. but it's not. Yeah, the other two are weekly. What What is the podcast opportunity? I'd, I'd be very curious how you see the industry and, and, and what is achievable in it right now. Uh one is, I mean, I think there's something specific to being a stand-up comedian with a podcast is that there's not the sense that you need to make money off them for them to be valuable to you. Right. You know, so I they think bring that, people like, out to the like, show and... They bring people out. They absolutely bring people out to the show. It doesn't matter if you do something regular, and I think Marin proved this. Now I think Marin's it's very clear his is making money, but it changes the it changes what happens when you go on the road if you have a podcast that is regular and people are paying any atten- any level of attention to. Like it absolutely sort of like you know there are people in the audience who are here who who either came because of the podcast didn't know who I was before the podcast or heard about the show because they were listening to the podcast. So so it, it, for me it's like as a comedian. A working comedian who knows what they want to do with their career and doesn't have a podcast, I feel like is wasting a tremendous opportunity. I would say it's like the hot dogs at Costco. Like it just, you just it gets people in the door, you know. So because people are like the hot dogs at Costco are so cheap, are they? Like, <laughs> but it gets people in the door and it gets people also, excited. Of the things that I want in my life to be really, really, really cheap. Meat of unknown providence. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> it just From a big box store. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't sell other food. Yeah, I, I think I think there might be other things I want to save a buck on than than, yeah. than yeah. what is in my meat. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it's but it's definitely the thing I remember when Costco first started. People were like the hot dogs are so cheap, <laughs> and and then it becomes about well, what is the podcast? And for me, the other part is like you get to do things in podcasts that you can't find other ways to do. 
when we started the Denzel Washington podcast, it was just about two friends who like to talk about Denzel Washington and didn't want to have to figure out a way to sell people on it. Like, we'll just start a podcast where we do it and see who shows up, <laughs> you know, and people have showed up. And it's a it's a it's an important part of people's podcast schedule, which it's not going to take down the biggest podcast, but it's a fun thing for us to do. And at the time I started that podcast, I had just gotten out of totally biases, late night, crazy talk show thing. And it was like. I didn't want to do anything that was just like that. I just wanted to have fun with my friend. And so that's why we started the Denzel podcast. I, I feel like I hear that story and myself feel that story a lot. It is this place that people who end up doing high pressure, highly scheduled, uh, logistically difficult creative projects then turn like, here's something that is manageable and I can control that my friends can come on and I can curse and it's going to be great. And then soon enough, they're doing, you know, nine podcasts and <laughs> yeah, and yeah, it's, it's all it's over a, the schedule. And once again, it, it yeah. turns out some of this stuff is innate. It's not really about the medium. No, then eventually you're like, we need, we need merchandise and we need to hire <laughs> and we need to yeah, like get the website redone. You know, like, yeah, and eventually it starts to become its own thing, which is what has happened. But luckily I'm in a position where even though it can be exhausting that, Everything is sort of has enough support around it that I'm not doing it by myself. That was the other thing with podcasting is like the other podcast I had, which was good. And it was a lot of fun with my friend Vernon Reed, who's a guitar player from Living Color. We were, it was just the two of us. So it, it quickly becomes exhausting. Like, you know, uploading the file is exhausting. How do I get this file uploaded? You know, things that shouldn't be. But now with these other podcasts, there's enough support around them that I just it's the greatest privilege in the world to sit down talk, get up, and leave, and trust that it's all going to work itself out. So, uh, And that's, again, giving up some level of control, giving up some level of financial remuneration because other people are getting paid for it, but also knowing that, that I, I can't look at this as the money-making thing. I have to look at this as the thing that helps promote me generally. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. What is it like being part of cable news in this moment in American politics? I mean, it's a weird, there are weird cross currents around that. 
that was never the goal uh, for me. After Totally Bias was canceled, I, you know, I found myself in a bunch of meetings, and a lot of the meetings that felt the best were at news networks, where I felt like, oh, they get what I'm trying to do, and they, they want some comedy in here. But then it's like, well, how do you plug that in in a way that it that is supportive and doesn't seem weird? There's been examples of you know news networks trying to sort of just do comedy, and it just doesn't work because people can't make that shift. So I went into CNN with this, this pilot idea that somebody had pitched them, and we talked about that, and I was like, oh, I could do that. It's sort of, I'm a big fan of Bourdain and Morgan Spurlock. And so I was like, oh, I could do a version of that. But then a part of that is like, also, oh, you could come on the network and talk about other things. And you go, huh? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's not a thing I imagined myself doing. Like, And so now it's like, well, I, I do it occasionally when, when the moment's right. But it is such a vast difference from what we were just talking about with podcasting. The thing about like you like we will say something here and we'll be like, "Ah, oh, was that the right thing? Did I miss did I misstate that?" People are more forgiving because they came here to listen to this. People who watch cable news on some level are watching it to be agitated. Oh yeah. It, it, it's as if you said to yourself, "I really feel my blood pressure is too low." What can, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what can solve this problem? Who will make a product that yes. is counteracting my statins or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and, and and your doctor's like, we have made we have something for you. <laughs> but it doesn't but, even matter which cable news network you watch, they will all agitate you eventually. What do you uh, think cable news will look like in ten years? You know, I think all of this stuff is going to is going to get more the users are gonna have more control over this stuff than they do now. I mean I get irritated when I turn on the cable news and I'm like, but I don't want to hear this presidential rally by either candidate. I want to know what's going on in Milwaukee right now. Can I swipe the screen? Can I, you know, <laughs> and so I think that that's maybe for the good or for the bad. Who knows if it's good? But to be able to sort of like some of us don't want to be agitated by the thing that's on right now, and you're going to be able to figure out a way around that. And I think that that's what I hope happens. Is that in the same way that like it's funny to me that I go, well, if I guess if I want the news, I just better go to Twitter, which is a weird thing to say. But many people have do- are doing that. So it's just like I think that there will be a way to navigate around the stumbling blocks that currently exist in cable news. You know, once your TV really is just a, is really just a, a gigantic iPad and not really sort of this weird monitoring device that you can't really you don't have that much control over. I think you are right. And I hope you're wrong. <laughs> That's a, I'm not sure it's better. <laughs> I mean, you think about like I'm old enough to remember you either watch Dan Rather or this guy or that other guy. <laughs> like you know, like, so, so at least when we're having discussions, we're all having based in some sort of sense of the same of the same fact base. You I, don't know? E- I, I mean, I I don't even know about there's the dream of the Dan Rather era where everybody you know listened to the same three white dudes, but. I do think that there is, and I do want that choice, right? I do want to be able to tune into Milwaukee. I do want to be able to say no. I want to go to go to the election. I, I hear that, and I run a site that you know hopefully is covering both. But I really hope it doesn't speed up. And what I see coming, maybe I mean we'll see, is Snapchat. And Facebook Live and Instagram Stories and all of these ways of doing more super fast video at a lower touch, at a lower level of sort of digestion and synthesis and thinking it through. 
And I mean, maybe it'll have a, a kind of countervailing force that'll emerge against it, right? Last week, tonight, with John Oliver emerges, I think, in some ways, because things are, are too fast. Part of what that, mm-hmm. in very much the way that The Daily Show is ideologically a response to Fox News, I think that last week, tonight is conceptually a response to uh, the speed of news. I just like I see it on Twitter, and I I sound like such a like an old cranky man, like shaking my shaking my fist to clouds right here. But I really hope it doesn't go too live because I'm not sure it's good for us. I, I think that we're getting more information and less understanding. Well, yeah, and we're also getting a thing where it's just because it's live doesn't mean something's happening. Right, sure. <laughs> just because we're we're here right now. Look, yeah, you are. You're totally there right now. <laughs> like, like, does anything happen since the last time you told me you were there? Like, and I think that's the that's the fear too. Is that just too much credit is being given for being at the scene of the place without any without sort of like okay, now that we're here, let's go do something or let's go find something. And I think that that's the thing that I mean. That's one of the oldest. Stand-up comedy jokes in the world is the guy who's like, "I'm outside. It's raining. Look at the rain. <laughs> like, you know, like, why are you? Like, what is that telling us? You know, I don't know that there's going to be a much more powerful video this this year than Diamond sort of Facebook living her fiance's Oof. death. Yeah, you know, like that's th- those of us who tuned into it who felt like we could handle it. Watch it, and you're like, I don't know that I, I don't know that we're going to see something more powerful than that. But there's a there's a lot below that that's not that powerful. I mean, you you very much want the capability to have that kind of live. I mean, the democratization of live video is clearly uh, is clearly an important thing, I think. But I do just wonder about choosing and, and maybe it all goes fine. Right. I mean, one thing that is really different about the kinds of platforms I'm talking about from cable news, and, and I think ultimately cable news will be much more dependent on these platforms, too, is that they're sharing based. And so there is at least some kind of filtering mechanism. So maybe that maybe that separates wheat from chaff. But I, I just I think there is a there's a volume and speed. We are moving towards technologies that make volume and speed really easy. As much as we talk about the 24 hour news cycle, it turns out to be really expensive to get a cable news channel. And so you can't have that many of them simultaneously. And certainly they can't all be doing very near things to each other. And so there is a set of choices imposed by that scarcity. And once you no longer have that scarcity and you don't have to make that choices, you can swipe to whatever. You know, I I, I can see that going in in weird ways. And then the question becomes, will we will anybody ever be able to have a conversation with somebody else ever again? Because <laughs> like, we'll all be like pulling from such separate different things that it's like, I don't even understand what you're saying. And I mean, that's how I feel when I'm looking at my Twitter feed right now. It's like, I don't there's all these different conversations. That everybody thinks theirs is the most important. And you can't talk people out of that. And then the thing that's frustrating, then they want you to engage in their conversation. You're like, I don't want any parts of this. But maybe I should because it'll help raise my Q rating. (laughs) It is amazing when you really grok how constrain your own news view is. And and I think about myself in this all the time. I, I was having a conversation with somebody today and, and I was saying to them, and, and this is true, that I, as of this morning, I've now been informed, I didn't know which sports were in season right now. I just I <laughs> do not watch sports. 
And uh, I've been told it's baseball. Uh, it's possible I was lied to, uh, but but I don't think so. It's a credible I can source. Con- I can confirm it's baseball season. <laughs> but can, you have you can cite two sources now. That it's baseball season. <laughs> but this is just how so many people absorb politics or foreign policy. I mean, the things that I care about are actually objectively a lot less popular than baseball. And this stuff, it feels so constant and it feels so overwhelming and it feels so big. And then you back up for a second and think, you know, my God, like it's actually really small. It's a small percentage of the people paying attention now. And it's a small percentage of even the things that I wish I was paying attention to. And for all that it feels like I'm drowning in information, there is such a wide variety of topics and questions that I am paying only the barest attention to. And and everybody's like that. In some ways, there's something almost a little comforting about it, because I think like those of us who are following the news in a constant way end up with a very high negativity bias. And it's good yes. to sort of remember that that is not the, the truest representation of the world. But man, you know, it, it's real easy to, to, to mistake your Twitter feed for the actual sum total of human knowledge. <laughs> Yeah, that's I mean, I think that's true. And that's why for me, it's become really important to make sure like when I look at the list of podcasts I'm listening to, that they're not all here's the fastest way to get some bad news. Like, it's like, <laughs> like, there's a there's a basketball podcast I listen to called Jalen and Jacoby, which is just two dudes talking about the NBA. And it's just like, ah, but uh, it's funny, even in that, though, uh, Jalen Rose used to play in the NBA because it's two dudes and one of them is a black athlete who's socially conscious of Cage like. Oh yeah, we we still do gotta talk about Ferguson in here, don't we? You know what I mean? Like we still do have to talk about LeBron James' response to, you know, Black Lives Matter. Like it's just like you can't again, all the streams are crossing. Can't ever totally get away from it. So but, so give uh, give me your podcast diet. What are what are the ones you subscribe to? Or the five okay, your five favorite that you subscribe to? Oh, five favorite. If I say five favorite, it's going to be the one. Just go through all of them. Else. You can you can do whatever you want here. This is a it's <laughs> okay. a it's a fucking chaotic situation. Uh-oh. Well, good. Uh, Changing on the fly. Uh, here we go. So uh, no offense to any podcasts that are not mentioned. Radio Lab, 99% Invisible, This American Life, The Joe Rogan Experience, Politically Reactive, that's mine, WTF with Mark Marin, Jalen Jacoby, Death, Sex, and Money, Planet Money, Here's the Thing, Denzel Washington's the greatest actor of all time, period, <laughs> uh, Pardon the Interruption, Malcolm Gladwell, Revisionist History, recently subscribed to Nerdette. Was listening to some Ezra Klein show before today. Yeah, <laughs> to get myself properly situated. Whistle stop. I just subscribed to the John Dickerson podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah it's yeah. really good. Man, you yeah. you name a bunch of great ones there. I've started listening to Death, Sex, and Money recently, and that is so good. Yeah, no, that's that's another one that will get you out of the current moment totally. into just like something that is like this is. I, I'm a big fan of like this is just interesting, and I wish if the world wasn't such a horrible place. I feel like I would have more to say about things that were just interesting. <laughs> like I feel like so. <laughs> sometimes I'm like, I would like to start a basketball podcast, but the world is burning down. Because even my Denzel podcast ends up talking about diversity in Hollywood and Oscars so white and all that kind of stuff because you can't get away from that stuff. So, but yeah, uh, death, sex, and money, and a sales. That that's a good one. That's a good one. To just take you. Let's just tell somebody else's story and get out of your own way for a second. Do you think that it would be worse either in terms of audience generation or? mission, for lack of a better word, to try to pull back from that negativity bias and focus on, let's not say things are just sort of curiosities, but things that are also important, but not as upsetting. Having talked to people in news about this, there's the sense of like, how do you get people to care about things that aren't actively bleeding, you know? 
the thing I will say, like the, with CNN, is like all the shows that they have that aren't straight up news, like Morgan Spurlock and Being Bourdain. I feel like as a way to go, here's stuff that's relevant to the world, but it's not necessarily actively bleeding. But it is something that you should know about and you should have some thoughts in your head about. You know? Yeah. And I think a little bit right now that whole like people have like said to me like I've, I've I've been referred to as a journalist now because I work for a news network. I don't want to take that label on because the way journalism defi- as defined currently is pretty narrow, and I don't want to sort of have to fit into that place. I like to be biased, but I do think that there's if you if you allow people to sort of tell the stories who who are those stories that aren't biased towards negativity, who don't feel like they have to find the negativity or have to sort of play sort of like on one hand, this hand, I think you can get to better, you can get to content that people will watch. I am not sure the assumption that negativity is the only thing people read is actually true. I, I had Ariana Huffington on the, the show a while back, and she was talking about how one way the Huffington Post adapted for the social era was to do a lot more positive journalism on solutions. And, you know, people can debate individual pieces there. But we've seen at least a bit of the same thing, that that people actually like reading about things that make them feel more hopeful. But I don't think many journalists get into the job to cover things that are more hopeful, if that makes sense. I think that there is a, among all of us, including myself, a a cultural bias and a professional bias towards focusing on the outrageous, focusing on the injustice, and sort of wandering around saying, here's a promising pilot program from the World Bank that is helping people (laughs) in Kenya grow more grain. The piece does no worse, actually, maybe even does better. Somehow it's hard for people to structure their job around that. This is something I've been thinking about in terms of Vox a lot. But a lot of the things that I think we believe are driven by audience metrics or some kind of other objective business or journalistic incentive are often cultural preferences of journalists or things that we just kind of do because it's how they've been done in previous technologies and in previous eras of the news. I mean, I think that's true. I think that's how you get the rise of, you know, and people have a lot of feelings about this, the rise of a network like Vice is that it feels like it's not, this, it's not, not that they don't have a negativity bias there, but it's also, <laughs> they, I guess they have an excitement bias too. Look at how exciting this is. But, you know, I think that there's a sense of like people feeling like the, that the ways in which news has been delivered to us is sort of, it feels like, yeah, this is the way it happens. This is the way it always happens. And I think, and, and sort of people want to taste for something different. So I think like, it's funny to be in this space of like, like working for me, working for a news network, not we don't sit down and go, what's the news as we sort of put those shows together. But we but I always want to know I want to talk about things that are relevant, which is news adjacent. <laughs> you know, like yeah. It's like news it's, adjacent it's the news. Home. Yeah. So I feel like it's like and I've sort of like always want to be it's not fun to be like having had one of those shows where you have to have rapid response. To me, that's not fun because you never get to have that deep dive. And I think that's what Oliver, like you said earlier, has proven that, like, give me a week to figure it out. <laughs> like, <you know? laughs> and also give me a week to write a story about something that you weren't even expecting me to talk about. I mean, the, right. you know, the fact that John Oliver made people on a sort of a wide scale or was a, a part of the part of the forces that made people get what net neutrality was for the first time. Mm-hmm. When I had friends for years, we were like, how do we make the common man understand? <laughs> you, know, like, you know, And it's like it takes a comedian. I think is we have to sort of value that more. And I think that we have to value the fact that there's more than one way to get this done. I mean, I look at Trump. The reason why Trump has been allowed to sort of malinger as long as he has is because there was all this focus on what he was saying now. And it felt like 
I felt like if the media had stopped there and go, whoa, 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 before we get this too far, let's give you a big picture on who this guy is. You know, like, like it's, you know, sort of during the the election, there was a sense of like sort of chasing the soundbite. And, I, you know, and I know that I'm sure Vox has certainly done articles on like deep dive articles on Trump. So I understand that. But I feel like as a whole, like the like cable news was like really chasing his soundbites and didn't back off and go. If we give you a real big picture on what this guy is, I don't think you're going to feel the same way about him. You know, and what's funny? it's funny. I I actually think the big pic the the big picture we would have given on who Trump was I don't know eighteen months ago or a year ago would have been way more positive than the impression people got from listening to his sound bites. I, I remember this because I remember talking to people about this, and there was a long time when the reigning impression of Trump was here's a pretty savvy businessman and entertainer who is clearly playing a little bit to the rubes in the Republican Party. But is doing something smart. And look, he'll get into office. I, I remember liberals making this case to me that he's better than the other Republicans. Like he'll get into office and he'll be pragmatic and, you know, he'll get, you know, smart businessmen to surround him and he'll listen to the best advice. And clearly he didn't get rich by not listening to the best advice. And and I think there's a whole view on Trump. I mean, yeah, the guy had been embroiled in a lot of lawsuits, but that there was a view of Trump that sort of thought there was a guy there who wasn't this guy. <laughs> that there was, I'm trying that to think of a way actually, to say this. Yeah, uh, but yeah, That there was actually a real person there and not a, and not a Mardi Gras float. Right. But when, it, as it became clear, and it became clear, I think, early, but it took people a while to really grok it. Here was someone who the reason he had done so well in building a global brand and the reason he had done so well in creating a reality television celebrity presence was that he had extremely unusual adaptive traits to generating publicity, to getting in front of the cameras, to saying anything. And that those he couldn't put that down. He he couldn't not be the guy. I think that only dawned on people pretty late. I don't think I don't think anybody would have said about Trump what they are saying now two years ago, including me. I think I, I think I was pretty early to the Trump is a genuinely dangerous bandwagon. But even I had a lot. I remember at one point thinking, like, should I write an article on how Trump is, you know, maybe going to be more pragmatic than other posts? I'm like, let's see how this plays out. And I'm, I'm glad I waited on that one. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm saying I should, you should have written that article. You could have been the one. But don't you think part of it with that is that also, because I feel like living in the Bay Area, I heard this, nobody took him that seriously, at least for like a lot of people didn't. Like, I, I felt like I didn't hear the thing about, like, if he gets into office X, Y and Z. I heard the thing. He'll never get into office. So there was just sort of like we can sit back and enjoy his nonsense the same way that like we sit back and enjoy like Herman Cain going nine, 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 nine. Like we're not worried about you actually getting into office. So we're not going to do a deep dive on who you are and what you've done in the same way that like there's sort of those guys who run for president. It was like, well, that I mean, that's not going to happen. So we need to take this serious. And I feel like because Trump came from the celebrity world, I just felt like a lot of people didn't take him seriously because they were like, eventually one of these other establishment people is going to, Jeb Bush is going to be the guy. Oh, not him? Okay, well, Cruz is definitely going to, oh, not him? You know, like there yeah, was this totally. sort of sense that like, by the time people took Trump seriously, it was too, it, this is my take on it because living in the Bay Area, everybody I talked to was like, I'm not even going to say Donald Trump's name because I don't want to give him the attention. It's like, that's not how it works. Right. Well, there was as long, you know, the Huffington Post would only cover him in the entertainment section, period. And yeah, I think there was a long time when people didn't take Trump seriously. But I do think that to the degree they did, they had done a 
projection that he was an entertainer. That that was the view of him. I mean, that was, in fact, like the underlying idea of the like Huffington Post putting him in the entertainment section. And the idea of the entertainer is that at some point the entertainer goes home and he takes off the clown suit and he's like, oh, hey, honey, like, do you want potatoes or like, do, should I go to the market and get asparagus? And Trump, it turns out, does not take off the suit. I've had a lot of these moments with this guy at this point, but I remember watching two things recently that really were stunning to me. First, the performance he did when he introduced Mike Pence as his running mate, where he just came out without Mike Pence standing at a podium that didn't have Mike Pence's name on it. And as if he was running an SNL routine, just kept talking about himself and how he had like destroyed and humiliated the rest of the Republican Party. And then every five minutes would have to like say aloud, but I'm here to talk about Mike Pence. And then would like literally as soon as he said that, be like, but one more thing before I do. I, it was the, one of the most deranged things I've ever, I've ever seen uh, happen. And then the day after his convention speech, he came out and gave his press conference where he said, yeah, like I gave this great convention speech. It was terrific. But what I really want the press to talk about today is whether Ted Cruz's father, Ted Cruz, a now vanquished Republican competitor, whether his father (laughs) helped kill JFK. And it was such a nuts thing that you realize like there is something deeply cracked. I don't know what it is. I'm not going to try to armchair diagnose, but I would not have said that about him. Like I, I didn't take him. I totally copped to not believing he could win the Republican nomination until later. But if I had written the big Trump piece, I would have said this is a strategic player who is making some pretty smart moves and is enabled by a lack of shame. And it wasn't until much later where I realized this is a non-strategic player enabled by a lack of shame, but who can't stop. He can't pivot away from that strategy and it will become maladaptive in the general. Uh, you know, when you say t- people, entertainers going home and taking off the mask, I feel like you should talk to more entertainers. The masks don't come off. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Eddie Murphy is dropping coats behind him. <laughs> like the, the the people I know who are who are like who are you know most people I know who are in show business. It's not that they're different than they, they're either the volume is turned up on who they are when they're home or the volume's turned down, but it ain't different. Like, it ain't, like such it ain't, an interesting like, point. Yeah, it's like either it's like, well, he's not as loud as I thought he'd be. Well, he's even louder than I thought he would be. That's generally <laughs> what it is. It's not that they, oh, it's a completely different person. Like, I think that's the that's that's the thing. And I also it's like into to do what I do. I can't help but feel like there's some level of like white privilege that a white rich man gets the benefit of the doubt in a way that other people don't. Oh, sure. That he gets to like, he doesn't really mean this, or he's smarter than this, or he's not. Whereas with the rest of it, it's like, we're often assumed to be dumber than we are. <laughs> like, we're like, so like, you know, where he gets this sort of benefit of the doubt, like, he's rich, so he can't be stupid. You know, right. he's, he's, he's a, he's a white man of a certain height, so he can't be dumb, you know, like, and I feel like that's the thing that for me, is like, gets frustrating for the rest of us. It's like, how can we can get that benefit of the doubt when we apply for the bank loan? <laughs> like, right. Sure. <laughs> I mean, there have been, I think a lot of great pieces. Herman Lopez wrote one at Vox. I remember Frank Bruni doing something like this at the times, putting Trump's quotes in the mouth of a woman or an African-American man running for president and and, and putting his biography and, and his quotes together there and just saying, like, really imagine what would happen. Like, really imagine mm-hmm. what would happen if a woman talked about men the way Trump has talked about women, if an African-American man had spoken about women or other religious faiths the way Trump talks about them. And you realize immediately, I mean, like, it is, you could not do it. Like, it, it just, it, it wouldn't have flown for a second. 
No, I mean, at Trump as a woman is Sarah Palin. Like, you know, I just feel like that there's just a sense of like that you, is is more immediately and more readily. And I'm not, you know, one to often defend Sarah Palin, but is more readily available to be a a mockable punchline in a way that like Trump is a punchline. But at the end of the day, people go, well, you have to respect him because he's. He's a businessman. You know, like, and it's just this thing where it's like, no, that's actually not how that works. I think it's probably harder to be a woman who becomes a governor of Alaska than it is to be a white rich guy with a loan from his dad. Like, I just feel like I think right, it's yeah. harder to, if I had to sort of put those two next to each other, which one is harder to accomplish? And I think that that's, and the thing that's scary about Trump is he, it's like white, some white people now who are Trump supporters are now able to talk about white privilege, but they're like, that's right, it's a privilege to be white. Wait, that's not what we meant. Like, that's, not, <laughs> that's not how we meant that. And I think that's the scary part is that he eventually does go away, as he's already told us he's going to go away and take a long vacation. But, you know, you've lifted up the rock, and what do we do with all these ins- with all the things underneath the rock? I feel like that is one of the great questions. What What comes next, if anything? You know, sometimes things stick and sometimes they fade away. But I think the hard thing about Trump is that what he has tapped into is there. Whether it organizes is, I I think, an open question. But I do think you had this great line when we opened this conversation where you said people are in mourning. And I think that's probably right. And and I think one of the things that a lot of people are having trouble with right now, and, and frankly, I, I want to be super clear on this, a lot of Republicans, uh, the, the worst things I hear right now about Donald Trump or about the state of the country or the state of the Republican Party are coming from Republicans, that we would have indulged this on such a scale, right? There's a growing sense among uh, among folks that, okay, like Hillary Clinton might win this election reasonably easily, but we're talking you know, at the very outside, like 55 to 45 and 45 percent of people like or 45 percent of people turn out to vote in that world, make a affirmative judgment that given what we have seen, Donald Trump should be president of the United States. And, you know, I didn't feel this way about Mitt Romney. Like I totally got Mitt Romney. Uh, Yeah. The Trump thing, it forces you to reevaluate some priors about what is possible. Yeah, and it forces you to sort of say, "What is this? What is my country?" Right. You know, what is this country, and where and where is this country going? Because you know, certainly people say, "Oh, well, the numbers are on the side of of that demographic, the the demographic people who support Trump sort of being lesser, having a lesser and lesser impact on elections." But what do they do while they're having that lesser and lesser impact? Like, what what do they then shift to? Is the question. You know, so. What a time to be alive. I do want to note that we went from a conversation that was literally about how to talk about things that are more positive that are not in the news. Like we were literally having that conversation. It's like, hey, how about Trump? <laughs> this stuff, it's like a, it's like a tractor beam. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's hard. So let, let me ask you a couple of the questions we, we used to close out this podcast. What is something you believe is true that most people believe is false? <laughs> such a such an easy way to incriminate myself. Um, <laughs> I believe, despite the conversation we just had, and despite the thing about the numbers in the polls, that there's still a shot that Trump could be the president. And I know that that puts me in the camp of 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 like people who don't believe facts and figures. But and I do tend to believe facts and figures. But I believe that we're not out of the woods yet because they still have to have a debate, a series of oh, debates. Yeah. And I just feel like 
anything's possible. I, I don't feel comfortable saying, having the discussions right now around like, well, let's just talk about what happens when Hillary's president. <laughs> as much as I would like to have that, I feel like it's, it, they still have to be on stage together for like at least three different debates, and that's where Trump thrives, and I just feel like anything could happen. I don't think that's wrong, actually. I mean, look, like I would, I would probably give Trump a 20, 25% shot at this point, but that, that is a far cry from zero. All right, like yeah, I feel tw- like it's it's twenty five percent talk about probability things happen yeah. like all the time. Yeah, yeah. To, to sort of put it in like I follow you know so like I used to watch boxing and MMA. It's like he's got a puncher's chance. Like he's got <laughs> like it's like some sort of weird haymaker comes out of one of those debates where it's like a great sound bite or a great and Hillary stutters for a second and then it's you know you know it's we're there. All these election forecasts they they work in these probabilities and and what they're basically doing is running some kind of model. It's like we ran a you know, model this election 10,000 times and here's what happened. It's like, that would be nice. Could we just run this election like a bunch of times to just make sure we don't get it wrong? (laughs) Could we we not, could we not make this one shot and done? Um, Yeah, could we have seven days of voting, make it best of seven? Right. What are three books uh, that have mattered to you, that influenced you, that you think people should read? The Autobiography of Malcolm X, Changed My Life, as told to Alex Haley. I think it's a very classic, in a weird way, a rags to riches story, <laughs> except except the riches is spirituality and emotional <laughs> development. I always wish I could read that book again for the first time. King of the World, which is a book about Muhammad Ali and about sort of the transition in America from like through sort of looking at race through boxing, that there was sort of three different versions of black, two different versions of blackness. There was like the Sonny Liston animalistic version of blackness. And then there was the Floyd Patterson, I've got my hair pressed and laid down to the side and I've speak the Queen's English. And so white people like me. And then there was the Muhammad Ali, this new version of blackness where it's like, I just do the thing that I want to do and I'm not beholden to your standards. That's a book that, that uh, was big for me. And uh, I said revisionist history, so I'll say I'll say uh, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. I read that when I was starting to figure out how to, when I was at the point where comedy wasn't going well and I was sort of really needing something that inspired me to look at things from a different aspect. So uh, I, was that, I was that asshole who was telling everybody to read Blink back then. W. Kamau Bell, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks to W. Kamau Bell. Uh, listen to his podcast, Politically Reactive, and Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time, period. Watch his show, United Shades of America, and tune in next week to The Ezra Klein Show, where I will have another person who is going to talk to me about weird subjects and indulge my rambling conversational style for somewhere between an hour and two hours. It'll be great. Thank you, as always, to Vox.com and Panoply, who put on this show, and to my producer, A.C. Valdez. 